Coming up on this episode, Anna Zabo joins us to talk about their latest book, Cinnamon Roll. Welcome to episode 303 of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for avid readers and passionate fans of gay romance fiction. I'm Jeff Adams, and with me as always is my co-host and husband, Will Knaus. Hello, everybody. Welcome back, Rainbow Romance readers. Before we get into this week's interview, we've got a little bit of news that we want to share. Last week, the Romance Writers of America announced the finalists for the Vivian Award. Now, the Vivian is the organization's new award, which recognizes excellence in romance writing and showcases author talent and creativity. Two MM romances were among the finalists, and it just so happens to be that these are two of our very favorite books. Laquette is a finalist for Under His Protection, and Philip William Stover is also among the finalists for Their Galapagos, My Heart. Congratulations to Laquette, Philip, and all of the finalists. The Vivian Award winners are going to be announced in late July, so be on the lookout for that. We are also so excited to note that Laquette's incredible Under His Protection is coming back on May 3rd, after having been out of print for a while. You can pre-order that right now, and if you want to hear Laquette talk about it, you can check out our interview with her in episode 184. So last week in episode 302, you might remember that we talked about the Tina Turner documentary on HBO Max. And we mentioned that there was some amazing footage in that of Tina alongside Tony Tennille, Karen Carpenter, and Peaches from an Olivia Newton-John TV special that was from 1980. Well, we went down the YouTube rabbit hole and we found that program, which is called Hollywood Nights. Not only is the number featuring those women pretty amazing as they sing the Eagles song Heartache Tonight in an array of locations around Hollywood, including in front of a bunch of bikers, which really made no sense, but, you know, this was the 1980s. There were some other great guest stars in this thing, too. Elton John, Cliff Richard, Andy Gibb. Gene Kelly showed up for a whole number about movies. This was recorded shortly after she finished shooting Xanadu, which, of course, featured Gene Kelly. It's such a bonker special, everybody. <laughs> some real 80s fabulousness there. YouTube also suggested another Olivia Newton-John special, her very first one from 1976. This one's even a little stranger, as she ends up wandering around the ABC Studios backlot looking for guest stars. She ended up on the set of Happy Days talking to Richie and Mr. C, and also came across Wonder Woman, played, of course, by Linda Carter, because this was during the era that Wonder Woman was shooting there. And they ended up and talked, and Wonder Woman really wasn't available to come and be a guest star because she was busy saving the world. Ah, it was so fabulous. Did you enjoy this fabulousness? Because it was such a weird going back in time. Well, I love Olivia Newton-John. That is, of course, without question. These specials, though, were occasionally good, but didn't quite scratch the nostalgia itch the way that I appreciate. When you turn back the clock and look at specials from this particular era, I kind of prefer the glitzy and glossy camp that was personified by some of the TV specials that Sid and Marty Croft were doing at the time. They were actually producers on Donnie Marie and did a whole bunch of other really weird, psychedelic, messed up stuff. <laughs> and that's sort of what I get into. These ONJ specials were lovely, some genuinely nice moments, but they're also very awkward. It's just, it's, it's funny. What, <laughs> what passed for entertainment back then was like, <laughs> as you like, huh? <laughs> It left me scratching my head at certain moments. Yeah. But she is a national treasure. And if 
Olivia Newton-John did a special today, I would certainly watch it. If you'd like to scratch your head like we did, we will put the links to these two specials in the show notes so that you can set the Wayback Machine for 1976 and 1980 accordingly. So as some of you may know, the Bold Brew Shared Universe books have been rolling out since late February when Annabeth Albert released Cup of Joe. This week, Anna Zabo's installment Cinnamon Roll arrives. I got the chance to talk with them about the universe and the book, which I have to say I love so much, and I'll be reviewing it fully in an upcoming episode. We also hear from Anna about some new sequels that they're working on. Anna, welcome to the show. I'm so excited you're here. We've been wanting to talk to you for a while. The stars aligned because you've got a new book out. I have a new book coming out, yeah. Yeah, Cinnamon Roll comes out this week. It's part of the Bold Brew Shared Universe. And before we get into Cinnamon Roll, for those who haven't taken a dive into the Bold Brew Universe yet, tell us a little bit about what that's about. It is a shared universe. So each book is written by a different author. There's 10 books in total. And it is centered around an inclusive coffee shop in a fictional town called Laurelsburg. And the coffee shop is called Bold Brew, hence the name of the series. And it is run by a polyam trio who own the coffee shop. And you never, we don't actually have a book about the trio. They're older. They've run the coffee shop for a number of years. So it's an established business in this little college town. And it became kind of a hub for LGBT plus community and also for the King community. So that is the start of the series is sort of around this coffee shop. And what led you to want to take part in Bold Brew? The concept was developed by Annabeth Albert, and she came to me and said, would you like to be part of this? Given the books that I write, the idea of a a kinky coffee shop and sort of books set around a kinky coffee shop was right up my alley, basically. I mean, that's (laughs) sort of sort of almost tailor made for, for me in a lot of ways. And I had really enjoyed writing when I wrote Outside the Lines, which was part of the Blue Water Bay shared universe. I really enjoyed playing in a shared universe. And so the thought of being able to help build the universe was kind of a a neat thing. So I said, yes, and we got started on it. Shared universes seem to be such the thing in 2021 between Bold Brew and Magic Emporium and Vino and Veritas, just to name a a small few of them. What do you think is making that so popular right now? I don't know. Sometimes things just happen in fiction, in fiction True. writing, where everything, everybody converges on the same idea. I think for me, I really enjoy, and maybe it has to do with being in the, these pandemic times, working with a bunch of authors. It's almost communal. And we've missed a lot of the sort of communal author things that we normally would do. There's been no conferences, in-person conferences. So people don't get to sit around and talk about what they're working on or anything like that. I mean, you can do it in small groups or, or Zooms or whatever, but it's you know that sort of extended period of really hashing things out hasn't happened. So it's sort of, I think maybe that's why people getting together and really spending some time talking about a universe. Cause it does take some coordination, at least ours did. We did a lot of meeting and talking about the town. And then we had a database set up where we started plunking in like, events that were going on and who got together when and if the characters were leaving town or if they're staying in town and where they lived and, you know, the whole whole thing. It's important to know who's where and possibly even more importantly, the layout of the coffee shop because you can't move the barista bar around. 
I forget who it was, but there were like layouts in oh, The Sims for the coffee shop so that we had an idea of where everything was and what it looked like. So I love so the you idea see, that you it's see in Max Sims. over by the fireplace a lot. So yes, he loves to grade papers over there. Yeah. And, and also be glared at if he's sitting in that seat too long. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's prime real estate. So it's a good segue. Tell us a little bit about Cinnamon Roll and their characters of Tom and Max. I mean, all the books are BDSM. We, we, we brainstormed titles too. And when the, the title of Cinnamon Roll came up, I was like, I want that title. <laughs> I really wanted to write a book where you have this amazingly sweet, kind guy who's also a dom and a sadist the saves kittens out of trees kind of guy who you know also really enjoys causing pain to his partners <laughs> just because of the juxtaposition of those two concepts of usually your dominant sadists or these sort of gruff hard men or women or people and you don't usually think, oh, well, they're so kind and nice and warm and like, you know, cuddly kind of kind of people. So I read on your blog, you you <laughs> actually wrote, I really wanted to write a cinnamon roll sadist. But that was what jumped in my mind when I saw the the title was, oh, I could write this guy who's just this this just a sweetheart, an absolute adorable sweetheart that everybody would love to have as a friend and who is also really good at causing pain and can turn on sort of the dominant side to him. Which I really enjoyed in the book, seeing that he really is this nice, sweet, kind guy. You're exactly right. I could see him go off and saving cats out of trees and stuff because <laughs> he's going to, he kind of wants to take care of people. And in some ways, to me, when he's inflicting this pain, he's doing it because the partner wants it. You pay so much attention to consent in the book, too. It's amazing to me how I've I found more books dealing with consent over the last few months. And it's really kind of sexy to watch those conversations play out. Yeah. How I, important I, was it for you to get consent into the book that way? It was really important. I, I really like seeing consent on the page. I, I do think there's a place for con and dub con, but in, in sort of this sort of more contemporary real life BDSM, I think it's healthier to see a lot of consent and I find it sexy. So I, I sort of write what I like. So, so that it just, it feels right to me. So that's why I like to see it. And that's why I like to write it. And I know there's been a lot of conversations about consent and enthusiastic consent, not just sort of minimal consent. So that's what I tried to write with him, especially in, in this sort of role that Max is in where he does want to take care of his partners. He's, it's very important to him to, that, especially with Tom, because of his background of not having very good partners, it's, it was so super important that he knows that Tom's on the same page and that he's not overstepping any bounds, that Tom doesn't want him to overstep. I think that's the other thing, because Tom wants Max to push him somewhat. But Max is very careful that he doesn't want to push too much and go too far. And that is another one of the elements that I like so much about how both of them, they're so careful to set boundaries, but then they push on those boundaries, but they're taking care of each other at the same time. And it's really a mutual relationship in those areas. How easy or, or maybe how hard was it to find the balance to make that work in the way that it does? 
in this book, I think it came almost naturally from the characterization because of who the characters were. It just seemed that naturally they would find that balance. That was probably one of the the easier parts of writing this book because there were bits of this book that were hard to write, but mostly it it was the, the organization of events was hard to get into the right order. The actual events were easy to write. It's just, I ended up cutting and pasting all this stuff around in the story, but they just seemed to click Sometimes that happens as a writer. Sometimes you have these characters that you throw them together and it just works. And they just seem to really work as a couple and with this sort of exploring who they were and the boundaries and how they were going to be together and the sort of the giving the space and the time to let feelings develop and be able to be named. And what were some of the more difficult things to write in this book? It's funny because it wasn't so much a difficult scene, but I had to rewrite it. Um, was there's a scene where they go to a little French, re- well, it's not a little French restaurant, but the joke is that it's a little French restaurant outside of town that Max knows. And because Max is French Canadian, by the way, that comes out in the book. So he's a polyglot. He speaks a lot of languages, French, of course, being his native language. So he ends up going to this little French restaurant outside of town with Tom And when I first wrote it, it was in the wrong point of view. (laughs) Um, And I wrote, and I think I wrote like the whole sequence is probably about 9,000 words. So I think I wrote the whole thing and I'm like, this is not the right point of view. And so I had to go back and rewrite it. I think I originally wrote it mostly from Tom's point of view. And I had to go back and rewrite half of it from Max's point of view. And that was just difficult to like switch it up and try to convey the same things that I wanted to convey from the other point of view, because suddenly you can't see into Tom's head. So you have to rely on Max's observations of Tom to know what's going on in Tom's head. It is an important point in the book because Tom's really having some issues about what this relationship, because it it's fairly early on in the relationship that this happens, and he's confused about what this relationship actually is. Is it a dominant submissive relationship? Is it a friendship? He's not had a kink relationship like this before. He's trying to figure out what this is. And Tom's immediate instinct when things are a little weird in relationships is to skip out on the relationship. So this was also Max trying to have a conversation and keep this relationship going as well. Tom has not had the easiest time. No, no. Because of the type of kink he likes, he does like a lot of pain play. He does like a lot of pain. He tends to stumble across doms who are not very respectful of his boundaries and just not very respectful of him as a person because he doesn't like humiliation. That's not his kink. So he ends up dating these guys who are just not very nice to him and the sex is okay the kink is okay it scratches an itch the beginning of the book he's very downtrodden about the whole thing he just feels beat down but not in a good way about you know kink and and just is he ever going to find the right dom type of thing and we see actually because it's a bit of a shared series we see a little bit of that in the previous book to the series which is extra whip written by la witt because Tom works with L.A.'s character, Aaron. They're both lawyers and they, they co-own a law firm, so they work together. So you see a little bit of Tom and his relationship troubles in that book. But you don't actually have to read that book 
that was kind of an interesting writing thing, her writing her book and me writing my book at the same time. How much input did you have in how Tom turned out in her book? Was that all like run past you? Like, here's what Tom looks like here? Yeah, yeah. We'd all planned out like what our characters looked like and personalities and things like that. With Lori, when we would have the other's characters in scenes, I would send the scene to her and she'd send the scene to me so that we would try to get the, yes, that's the way they talk or no, they wouldn't say that or they wouldn't use that phrase or that sort of thing. It was neat seeing, and you see Max shows up a few times in earlier books too. Max shows up in Crystal Lacey's book, which is Vanilla Steamer. What were the inspirations specifically for the characters of Tom and Max? Max physically is modeled after one of my favorite hockey players, which if you read the book and you know who my favorite hockey player is, like, like, yeah, okay, which is Chris Letang. So hence the French Canadian. Um, and there's a little throwback to the, the penguins with him being named Max because of Max Talbot. So there's like little bits and pieces. And, um, and not the least of which is that Max also plays hockey. Yes, Max also plays hockey and he is in fact a defenseman. So there's like little bits and pieces there. But aside from all that, then the characters diverge wildly <laughs> because you know, Chris Letang's a real person and Max is, is not. But I think the reason I, I chose him is I really wanted a character who was really like a beautiful person physically as well. And sort of some of the troubles that comes along with that because Max knows he's attractive. And he's also a college professor. So there's a kind of embarrassment about being that attractive when you're you're in a a, uh, teaching position. And then I think that's also probably part of why the consent is so important, because there's a thread that winds through where he's very aware of that he has to maintain certain distances from people. He doesn't date anybody at school. He tries to very hard to keep professional distance with his kids that he teaches. You know, if he has an anti-kink, it's in fact the professor's student. He's never going to go there. He does not find that sexy at all, having Mm -hmm. actually being a professor. So there's some of that. So that was part of the inspiration, I guess, for Max. Tom had a little less in terms of inspiration in some ways. It it really is Max's book in a lot of ways. So he, he is the cinnamon roll and the book is really kind of revolves around Max a little bit more than it revolves around Tom, although Tom is is certainly very important. And he has his own character arc that drives most of the plot, actually, of Cinnamon Roll. But Tom had less of a physical, like I didn't have like a, I want this character to look like this with Tom. I guess I wanted the more internal conflict was, I guess, the inspiration for Tom, which was the somebody who really is a masochist and not necessarily as submissive as he is masochistic, I guess. I think he's more, he just really likes pain and it takes him out of his head and it sort of grounds him. And the desire to find the right type of person. Also, in he's somewhat questioning about his status as a romantic or alloromantic. It's in the back of his mind of, he's really never fallen in love before. So he's sort of in the back of his mind of what is this? He has good friendships and things, but this encounter with Max is something that sort of is very different and he needs to work it out in his head. So a lot of it is really built around Tom's internal state of being. And I wanted somebody competent in most parts of his life too. I didn't want him to be a disaster everywhere. He's a disaster in certain parts of his life. He's 
actually a really smart guy. He's a very competent lawyer. He's compassionate with his friends and he's a divorce lawyer. So he has to be compassionate to a certain extent with his clients too. You know, I think he's one of these people that he can give out really good advice to everybody else. And he's really horrible at taking his own advice. I think and even occasionally taking other people's advice because he had a hard time, at least initially, letting Max kind of help him, essentially, because I felt so bad as the book opened. And this isn't giving away any spoilers. I mean, Tom's put up this ad in the coffee shop looking for the next Dom. And poor Max just has to watch all these brutal, essentially, interview sessions going on <laughs> across the coffee shop. And he's like, just take that ad down. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Max looked at that and was like, oh, it's not going to work. You're not going to get what you want. And, and lo and behold, Tom did not get what he wanted. I mean, oh, he no. did eventually with Max, but spoiler, it's a romance. <laughs> yes. I mean, that part we um, can spoil that there is an HEA there at, at the other side of it. Yeah. I mean, it, it works for both of them, the HEA. Both Tom and Max know of each other. They've been in the same circles for years and they just kind of have revolved around each other for various reasons. And a lot of it is Tom being Max is too good for me, too pretty too good too much he's not going to want somebody like me i guess he's competent but there's this hint of at least within the, the kink aspect he's sort of very down on himself very sort of has, has a lot of doubts about his self-worth there and it sort of does stretch out a little bit into other parts of his life but that's the main thing and it's sort of a lot of it is max and tom's friends sort of supporting him as he gets goes through working out that he, no, he actually does deserve a lot better and, and he can ask for more and ask for respect and, and still get everything he wants. That coalesces that so well, what you just said there. It's like asking for what you want and believing you, you can have it. And that's another really kind of sexy part of romances for me is when characters realize that they can have it and they should in fact ask for it and go after it. I think it's, it's what we want in real life, right? We want to be able to ask for what we need and be respected for it and find the right people to give that to us or, or help us find it. And I don't think it's it necessarily just in sort of romantic relationships. I think there's a lot of that in friendships too, that mm. we, we, we like to, to be able to be respected in our friendships as well. I like to see good friendships in romance as well, because I think even if it's not romantic, those deep personal connections are really important. And I think that's, uh, you get that in romance as well. Yeah, so much good stuff in Cinnamon Roll. I really hope uh, a lot of people pick it up and get to explore this because this was, for me, one of the first times that I've done a BDSM book. So I was really into seeing how their relationship developed and how they went through everything. Yeah, I just, I really loved the ebb and flow of it. Just more often than not, I was just going, oh, you guys. <laughs> Yeah, they're so sweet together. And there's a lot of sex and kink in this book. Um, but even when they're sort of in, in the real heat of the moment, there's this underlying kindness about it all, even when it's physically kind of demanding. And that's the kind of kink I like to write. So I always want it to be very evident that both people are enjoying what they're doing because I think that's important to me. I don't know if it's important to other people, but in a lot of ways I write books for myself too. And certainly this was a book I really did write a lot for me. It has a lot of the things I absolutely love 
thrown into it from the kink aspect to the hockey. It's beer league hockey, but it was fun writing some little hockey scenes too. There's a lot of food. I like putting food scenes in. So there's some restaurant scenes. There's some Max cooks. Of course he does. Of course Max cooks and bakes. No, it's a cinnamon <laughs> roll. It's just, you know, too good for the world. I really wanted it to, to revolve around kindness and sort of joy, I guess. And that's really what I've been looking for books through the pandemic year and now here in early 2021. You give me a book that's got essentially nice guys doing nice things who are kind. I'm mm -hmm. all over that. <laughs> it's probably one of the least angsty books I've written. Sometimes I have a lot of angst in my books. They work things out, but there's no big blow up scene or huge breakup where everybody's hearts are shattered. I didn't want to write that this time. So it really is kind of a little bit more fluffy in my own way. There's still some elements with Tom's background, of course. My kink isn't as fluffy as other people's, I guess. But I did try to keep it a little less angstful and more kind of a, a book that leaves you like, oh, that, that was nice, as opposed to to. I've been run through the ringer. I mean, I'm glad I've been run through the ringer, but I've, I've been run through the ringer. Last year was just really bad for me personally, I mean, aside from the pandemic, which was really bad. But, you know, the last year was just not a good year. <laughs> a lot of personal losses and things like that. So um, yeah, doing the kindness thing was the book you needed to write and the book you probably wanted to read, too. <laughs> yeah. And I, after I wrote Reverb, I had I'd gotten into a bit of a slump. Reverb was a really hard book to write, and it took me a long time to recover. And then there was the whole stuff that happened in the romance community, which knocked the wind out of me. And then like the personal stuff in my life happened. And the, you know, at the same time, the pandemic happened. And so I just I hadn't written anything substantial in probably over a year when I started Cinnamon Roll. And it was, I mean, in a lot of ways, very grateful for Annabeth for, for coming up with the idea of this series and that it was supposed to be a little bit lighter and, and less angstful and things like that. The whole series is sort of less, less traumatic, I guess, than other series because it gave me like the spark to get back to writing. I probably wrote this book the quickest I've ever written anything. It just kind of all came out very fast. Which says a lot that it's 90,000 words and you still wrote it fast. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't supposed to be 90,000 words. I was aiming for 50. Um, oh, wow. Okay. But, but it just, yeah, I can't. Someday I'm going to write a book that's, or a novella. Someday I'm going to write a novella. That's like my goal is I, I want to be able to write a novella. And I keep missing. Takeover was supposed to be a novella. That actually is like 53,000 words. It's not that long. It might be the smallest book that I've written. Shortest, I should say. But again, I was aiming for like 35 and right past it. So I was aiming for 50 and this just, and I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but the main thing with it was that the scenes were all out of order when I wrote them. The less big section I wrote fairly early on and it was actually supposed to be like, like the second time they got together and I was writing it and I'm like, this is the last scene. Crap. <laughs> because there's not enough space between these two instances that it can be the last scene. I mean, there's not enough stuff that has happened for these emotions to come out. So then I had to move a whole bunch of stuff around and then I had to you know, rewrite things. So there was a lot of moving bits around to make it sure that everything flowed correctly. And then filling in 
once I got sort of the major bits into the right place, filling in the relationships, because I didn't want it to be like insta-love. I didn't, I wanted them to actually go through and develop a, a kink relationship and a friendship and then a relationship. So it's sort of needed to put all that in. Let's talk a little bit about what got you started writing. What was the starting point for you? Oh man, it was actually in high school. I've always made stories up in my head. I mean, that's just the sort of thing I did as, as a kid would act things out with stuffed animals and things like that. But in high school, I had two friends. I had actually had a number of friends, but two friends that I'm still friends with to this day, which is kind of, you know, rare that you hang on to those friendships sometimes that long, Tracy and Renee. And they were writing what we would now call fic. This was, so this was like in the eighties. So this was 88, 87. Yeah, somewhere in there. And so they were writing crossover fic and it was crossover fic of the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon. I love that show. And Duran so Duran. Oh, wow. <laughs> and they let me read some of their stories. I and mean, this is spiral bound notebook stuff. And I really enjoyed reading it. And I said to Tracy, I have all these stories in my head. I should write them down. And she said, well, why don't you? And I didn't have a good answer. <laughs> so I literally went home from school that day. And my dad, he was a research chemist and he had actually gotten a PC for, for work. This is one of the old PCs with the big floppies. And it didn't have a hard drive. It had a floppy that you put the program disc in and a floppy you recorded things on. My handwriting has always been atrocious. So I went and I typed in the first start of a fantasy story. And then I printed it out on the dot matrix printer with tractor things you ripped off and took it into school and let Tracy and Renee read it. And that's sort of how it started because they really enjoyed the writing. And so I just kept writing and I'd write like a little bit every evening and bring it into school the next day. Eventually it got like passed around to people during the school day. And I didn't realize how far around the school it was going until people were asking me for more pages. So that was sort of the, the first real experience. And I guess it was kind of like a analog version of archive of our own. I, I was just thinking that. <laughs> you know? I still have that story. It's, I don't have the electronic version of it anymore, but I still have the, the physical copy of it. It's really very derivative. <laughs> I went back and read it a little bit and I'm like, oh my God, this is embarrassing, but there's actually good stuff here too. And that actually really changed my life in a lot of ways because I really fell in love with writing. I'd been decent in English, always loved reading, but it never occurred to me that I could write. And then it really occurred to me that I could and that I actually, like, this is something I wanted to do like for a living kind of thing. I was thinking about in high school, I was thinking about going into some sort of biology, like, you know, genetics or something like that. And I ended up doing this complete veering off and deciding that I wanted to go into English. So I ended up going off to college for English, though to a school with a lot of science. So I got a lot of scientific background, which ended up for my day job, you know, very useful being a technical writer, but I never gave up on the, the fiction writing. What sent you down the path of romance? That was grad school, actually. I decided to uh, gone through college and gotten my, my bachelor's degree in creative writing and, okay, how do I eat now? And fell into technical writing. It took a couple of years to really establish my career in technical writing and get to a place where I was settled and had a good job and a good paying job. And I felt like 
everything was okay. And at that point, there was a couple other personal things that went in, but I discovered uh, NaNoWriMo and I wrote the start of a fantasy novel for NaNoWriMo back somewhere between 2005 and 2008, I guess. I don't remember which NaNo it was somewhere in that time frame, though. I wrote, but after I did it, I was like, wow, I'd forgotten how much I really enjoy writing novels. And I was like, I need polished. This has been a long enough that I've been out of this. I need to either find a crit group or like take some craft courses. I need something. So I ended up going to Seton Hill has a master's in writing popular fiction. And it's in Greensburg, which is about an hour outside of Pittsburgh. And I thought this is great. It was specifically focused on genre writing and it was sort of all genres. And when I got there, I sort of fell in with a bunch of romance writers. And it turned out that the book I was writing at the time, the book I wanted for my thesis novel had this sort of romance subplot. I had not realized I was writing sort of a a romance, but it actually is not a romance, but there is this romantic subplot that runs through it. The romance writers were just so knowledgeable and so giving of all the information. If you were having difficulty with characterization, there was all this information about how you could look at characterization. It's the first time I heard GMC, gold motivation conflict, that sort of thing. And also one of the things that the program had you do was read a genre novel, the whole group, the whole class would read a genre novel every semester. And we'd, the beginning of the uh, residency, we'd all talk about it. And we'd talk about what defined the genre, how this book fit in with what defined the genre. The first one we did was romance. It was Bet Me by Jennifer Cruzy. And I really enjoyed the book. And I was like, this is romance. <laughs> <laughs> And I just, I just love the relationships. And I think now looking back on it, there's some things that I think are problematic in this book, but I mean, at the time it was, it was sort of like a revelation of you know, this is this, what romance could be. It was certainly not the romance I read in the eighties, uh, which is, I think the thing that people get stuck on. It's like they read one romance book back when, whenever, or they only ever picked up one and you can go out and pick up one fantasy book or one mystery book or something and not get the right one for you. And you can't dismiss a genre just by by that. So I really just sort of fell in love with romance at that point, but also specifically LGBT romance, because some of the people in the program were writing that. And it was sort of also a revelation that, wait, you can write this. It helped that one of the mentors was Anne Harris, who wrote MM as Jessica Freely. She hasn't written in a while for various reasons, but at the time she was writing a lot. And it was sort of like, wait, you can get paid to write this too. There are people out here who want these stories. And that was sort of the, a real revelation to me. I did write a, th- a fantasy novel for my thesis. And after that, I wanted to write something a little bit more romantic-y. So that ended up being Close Quarter, which was my first published novel, which was a paranormal romance. And that was sort of my, yay, I finished this thing. Now let me finish this really complex book. Now let me do something fun. And that was my fun book. And you can actually kind of tell that it has the romance things, but it actually has a lot of horror in it too. I was also hanging out with a lot of horror writers at the time. So it was sort of all the genres into one. Who are some of the authors who inspire the types of stories that you're writing? Oh man, that's a good question. I mean, I have a lot of my original 
people that I read when I was younger, I read a lot of science fiction and fantasy. I guess one of my favorite fantasy authors is Guy Gabriel Kay. And he's not romance at all. There's relationship plots, but it's not the same sort of romance. But I loved the the layers in his books, political layers and the, the, the personal layers and things like that that end up in his books. But also a lot of Sharon Shin. And she writes a lot of sort of fantasy romance or romances with fantasies. I didn't know that at the time. Again, it was sort of oblivious that I really enjoyed these books because they followed along a romance trope and I didn't realize it until I went back and I'm like, oh, look at that. Um, and then Michelle Segarra, Michelle West, writes these very sort of big fantasies. But again, it's a lot of characterization. It's a lot of characters and the relationships with other characters. So I think it's always gotten into me is this, these characters having relationships with other people and these deep, either deep friendships or... Uh, romantic ties or sometimes even like villainous ties. I guess more recently with MM Romance, KJ Charles, I enjoy her work a lot. I sometimes get a little intimidated when a new book comes out because I'm like, do I want to read this? Because it might be too good. You know, <laughs> I don't know if you ever get that with your peers where oh, you're yeah. like, like, oh, I know I should read this, but... What if it blows me away and I never want to write again? So yeah, I, I am familiar with that. And it's like the book hangover that comes and it's like, and why am I writing right now? <laughs> right, right. And then people like that. I love, I love Layla Rain. I love her writing. We're good friends. So very much a contemporary of me. But anytime she puts out a book, I'm like, I'm right, right there. You so know, what is a book that you've read recently that our listeners should be putting in their TBR? I really liked... Queen's Ransom a lot because I do like reading sort of FF books as as well and I just enjoy the relationship and the the fact that it's very much a, a Layla Rain book it's got all the explosions and the, the suspense and things like that and these two really strong women who just sort of fall for each other and take care of each other you kind of want to slap a little them upside the head a little bit, but no more than you would with the guys you know, in terms of the stopping self-sacrificing so much, let, let yeah. people in kind of thing. Totally agree with that. So after Cinnamon Roll, what's coming up next for you? Well, remember I talked about a little bit about my first book, Close Quarter. I kind of left it hanging, like at the end of that book, for people that haven't read it, it's a paranormal romance between a fae vampire hunter and a guy who turns out to be part Faye, though he doesn't know it at the start of the novel. And it takes place in basically a 10-day time span on a transatlantic cruise from England to um, New York. And there's this whole buildup about how things, once they get to New York, things are going to be very interesting because they're essentially a power couple, right? Suddenly this power couple is going to walk off this boat into New York. And that's where Close Quarter ends. And that book came out in... I want to say it's 2012, 2013, and I haven't written the sequel. So I'm writing the sequel <laughs> So because it's been in my brain for a long time and I'm finally getting it out on the page. It's just things happened. I'm always meant to write it earlier, but things happened that it kept getting pushed out because after I wrote Close Quarter, I wrote Takeover and that took off basically. And then I wrote Just Business, which did so much better than anybody expected. 
And that sort of kept that part of the career going. And I wasn't writing paranormal as much anymore. And each time I would sit down to work on it, some other book came up. So I'm like, you know what? I owe the readers who have stuck with me (laughs) since that book. I owe me the sequel and I owe them the sequel. There's some stuff I want to do in that world because I really actually enjoy the world that Close Quarter is built on. I want to do more in it, but it requires that book to exist so I can (laughs) do more in it. So it's a little linchpin that I have to get in there so I can then go and branch off and do other things. So Mm. after the Close Quarter sequel, I think there's a whole set of romances that I, I want to write that's set in a a fictional Jersey Shore town. And they are essentially all around siblings finding relationships. The first book is a non-binary love interest with a, I think he's kind of genderqueer or or gender questioning in the end. I feel very strongly about the series. uh, And I think it's something that people really want. So I'm just going to do it myself. (laughs) Because I can. Um, (laughs) How can people keep up with you online to know when the Close Quarters sequel comes out and all these other books that are in the works? Well, my website, AnnaZabo.com. I'm not the best blogger. <laughs> I'm few and far between on the blog posts, but at least when I do have a book coming out, I do actually post there. If you really want to know my day-to-day stuff, Twitter's the best place to follow me. And that's Amergina. It's A-M-E-R-G-I-N-A is my uh, Twitter handle. And you will see me talking about my day job. You'll see me talking about writing. You will occasionally see me talking about hockey, though I did branch off and I actually have a specific Twitter for when there's a hockey game and I scream about hockey. We will link to all of that. We'll, we'll link to both Twitters so people can follow both sides of Anna <laughs> and all the books that we talked about in our show notes. Thank you so much for being here. I loved our conversation and wish you all the success with Cinnamon Roll. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. This episode's transcript has been brought to you by our community on Patreon. If you'd like to read the conversation for yourself, simply head on over to the show notes page for this episode at BigGayFictionPodcast.com. And don't forget the show notes page also has links to everything that we've talked about in this episode. And thanks again to Anna for joining us. I'm so glad we finally got to have them here. I loved so much hearing how they got started in writing, especially what captured them with the fic that they were reading. The idea of the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon mixed with Duran Duran, I would so love a sample of that to see how those mashed together. And I really loved hearing about the the technology of the day as Anna and, and their friends were passing around spiral bound notebooks and that old school dot matrix tractor feed paper it it may be very nostalgic for many things in the 80s all right everyone i think that'll do it for now coming up on monday in episode 304 spencer spears joins us and he's got a sneak peek of what he'll be releasing this spring yes he's got a companion to the murphy brothers series on the way and we will have the full scoop on that thank you everyone for listening until next time stay strong be safe and above all else Keep turning those pages and keep reading. Big Gay Fiction Podcast is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find more shows you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Our original theme music is composed by Daryl Banner. 